0: Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonic's aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the monthly show where we talk all things Sonics. This is episode number 12 rivets. This month we're going to delve into all aspects of riveting as it pertains to the Sonics. We'll discuss the types of rivets used in the construction and uh, proper techniques and other tips and tricks learned along the way. So joining me again as usual are my two good friends Gary Motley and John Gillis. Uh, as you all know Gary is pilot of Hound Dogs. He is a longtime pilot, former CFI, uh, has thousands of hours of GA flying, and, uh, more than 600 hours on his Aerobee Sonics. Gary, what's going on? Oh, doing well, doing well.
1: Just waiting for the wind to die down. It's been about 70 miles an hour again here, so I haven't taken my little Sonics kite out for a flight today.
0: That is brutal. And, uh, also joining again, uh, John Gillis, builder of YX 116. John has made extensive custom modifications to his YX and loves to modify and try out new designs. Don, how you doing?
2: I'm doing pretty good.
0: Did you get any flying done?
2: Um, last flight was uh, right on New Year's, and then the uh, weather kind of kicked in, and because both Gary and are in Colorado, I had 65 mile an hour winds here.
0: That's crazy. We we had a little bit of wind yesterday and today, but nothing like that. Uh, just crazy weather.
1: Yeah, you know, I came from Florida where I had to deal with hurricanes, but, you know, after I moved to Colorado, I, I frequently think I get more hurricane-strength winds here than I typically did in a season
0: in Florida.
2: So needless yeah. to say, we're not flying until yeah. these Chinooks yeah. die down.
0: Right. Yeah. I haven't got any flying in either. Um, first we had the really cold weather and, uh, then it warmed up and it got windy and I went out there and checked on the plane and lo and behold, my little mini fridge had exploded. All those sodas had, had frozen <laughs> and then they, they shot across the hangar, destroyed a bunch. I, I, I must have destroyed a 12 pack of soda. So now i get to polish out the soda stain marks well at least you didn't waste any good beer well yeah exactly i keep the beer in a climate controlled environment (laughs) yeah that happens
2: every year for me in my hangar um i lose all my sodas
0: yeah you know it's happened to me before too and you would think i would i would learn my lesson but apparently i'm slow to pick up on these things so maybe next year you know
2: those refrigerators are supposed to be insulated and you would think that they would handle cold weather but boy they just
0: get colder yeah, I actually found the furthest can had shot out of the fridge, because they were sitting kind of horizontally. It shot out of the fridge and was on the other side of the hangar. It went probably 30 feet and skidded across the hangar from, from being expelled from the fridge. I don't know how that happened, but it was awesome. All right, well, let's uh, get into a couple of news items. Uh, I think first on the list is um, an update on the, the NavWorks ADS-B situation. So, John, why don't you run us through uh, kind of the current situation and what do we know now?
2: Well, you know, my my uh, I don't have a NavWorks, but I am following it. Um, what I know is just what was released, uh, basically right before New Year's. Um, NavWorks uh, on their website had uh, had put up a, a statement, kind of defending their um, their response to the FAA. Um, if anybody is not aware of it, the FAA is basically uh, considering a, a basically banning the use of these uh devices both in their certified um, model and their experimental model from broadcasting to the uh positions to the uh the ADSB network um, and uh their the, the uh service bulletin or the AD that's going to be released could possibly force anyone with a certified unit to deinstall them What's coming out now is that, uh, the, the big hubbub on this is Navworks had an internal GPS chipset that, uh, you know, takes their position and then they, uh, they, they, you know, combine that with the, uh, the transponder codes and then squit that out to the, the ground stations, the position of the aircraft. They initially had that certified. Um, then at some point Navworks changed the chipset to a consumer grade chipset which the FAA got word of and wanted to um, uh information and and started challenging Navworks Navworks uh kind of fought them FAA wanted mailing lists of all their customers Navworks decided that was not a a good solution and fought them on that then so there was a, a tit for tat with them and the FAA, and the FAA finally just dropped the hammer on them. Since then, they've had the FAA has to do a uh, open um, comment uh, for the the pending uh, directive, and the EAA and the AOPA have weighed in in NavWorks favor to at least um, keep the experimental versions available and, you know, then they'll deal with the certified versions later. Um, at this point, you know, that's where we stand right now. The, everybody with the Navworks is kind of waiting on pins and needles for what's going to happen or is Navworks going to survive? Is, um, are their units going to be outlawed? Um, you know, normally you can, you can put a unit in your thing, but you're broadcasting a position, if the FAA says that position is not verifiable, um, they don't want you on the network. So it's a it's a sticky situation for this, and I'm sure all the other experimental ADSB transmitter uh, vendors are really aware of this and and you know waiting for what's going to happen. So that's where I st- I know right now is what's going on.
0: I guess the part that I don't get is that the FAA in the past. Has allowed experimental avionics of all sorts to simply say, "Yeah, it's not it's not certified, but it meets the performance standards. So therefore, for an experimental airplane, it's good to go." And, and why is this any different? How come the FAA won't accept an experimental NavWorks box on the basis of its performance? I guess the I, I part think is it's
2: different. well. The per, the part that's different is I think this is um, because they have both a certified and a Experimental version, and maybe NavWorks has blurred the line between them. That uh, this is punishment um, that they did so without um, getting proper author- authorization from the FAA for their certified units.
0: I guess we'll just have to wait and see how this all shakes out.
2: Yeah, one of our uh, one of our Sonics builders has one of those NavWorks certified units in his Cessna, and he's just waiting for them to tell him to turn it off.
1: Yeah, I was certainly looking seriously too at NavWorks too for the last couple years for my sonics when it came time to to install. So I'm sure there are a lot of people out there and we hope that everything works out and everyone gets happy with them.
2: Well, and I was looking at Sky, uh, at NavWorks myself and decided to go with a Skyguard. Um, and I'm, I'm a little nervous about my Skyguard. I already have a, uh, I'm waiting for authorization to return my Skyguard so that they can change some programming on the encoding of the altitude, um, I guess we're out of compliance. Um, so, you know, they're all kind of, it's sketchy right now. I don't know if I'd be buying, investing in a, in an ADSB out right now.
1: Well, this may progress through the industry as a whole too. You know, everyone thinks they've got this thing figured out until, uh, like on many products, we get them out in the field and get enough beta testers to find out where the real bugs lie.
0: Well, I'm going to yep. wait. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to hedge my bets and. And uh let the let the things and the standards just sort of settle down before I invest any more money.
1: Well, I bought one for my new my new project, but I'm not flying it yet, so I'm hoping it's still gonna be good by the time
0: I need it.
2: Mm-hmm. Well and if you get if you get one from, you know, Dynan or, or uh Ben Bendix or something, you're you're probably gonna have, you know if it's Garmin, they're gonna have a big they're the big gorilla and they will get it through. But you know those of us who are kind of bottom feeding with these um, cheap solutions are the ones at risk
0: yeah that's a good point all right well moving on uh next topic is uh sonics released uh actually some time ago now a an additional uh turbo aero v service bulletin and in this bulletin they offer up a a new causation analysis essentially it's a new theory on what might be the root cause as to why some of these turbos were failing. And uh, you can go to the link and, and check out the whole write-up. But they cite some evidence from other turbo vendors, uh, Tornado Alley and some other people who, who deal with turbos often, and they say that they, they have seen a trend in new turbos that, that don't have a lot of time on them. They have not fully broken in. They don't have that protective coating sort of burnt on them. Uh, they're, they're low hours, like under 100 hours, and that is what is causing them to rust, especially if they, they only get used infrequently. If you get rust buildup on the, on the surfaces, then you're not going to, to rotate freely. And they think that perhaps the, the failures that they've seen in the Aerobee turbo fleet may have to do with, with some rust on the surfaces on these low hour units. So it's an interesting thought. Uh, I'm not sure unless they get additional, um, data points. I'm not sure if they're ever going to be able to pin this down or not. But um, it, it's an interesting idea. Additionally, uh, they've revised, released some uh, some new parts. So one of the things that was previously identified was this idea of oil pooling in the turbo housing and not draining off properly. And so they had a procedure to go through and make sure that your drain was oriented at the lowest point of the turbo. And then the nipple that screwed into the drain uh, was was trimmed flush with it so that it wouldn't pool up around any kind of threads that protruded on the inside. So you trim those threads off. Well, now, in addition to modifying your existing sump uh, to make it easier, Sonics has released a new custom deep sump. This is available for uh, for retrofit. If you choose not to modify your existing one, you can buy one of these. And then all future turbos are going to have this included as the new standard configuration. And then the last piece is... Uh, a, a new heat shroud. It's a stainless steel wrap that goes around it, and it it, um, it intercepts that radiated heat uh, rather than a quilted, um, insulated blanket that would go around the turbo that we previously saw. And I think the idea there is, after shutdown, you don't want to hold that heat into the turbo where you can then just bake that oil on all, this, all the surfaces. So the shroud keeps the heat out of the, the engine compartment, but it allows the turbo unit to cool a lot quicker and and reduce the coking effect after shutdown. John, do you know if uh if Carl has had any of these issues?
2: Carl um, was one of the the first ones to clock his turbo so that it would drain because when he installed it he thought it was it didn't make sense to have oil pooling in the, the bottom of the turbo. So um, he was ahead of the curve on that one. I did talk to him about the shroud, and he is going with – he's still staying with the blanket. He likes that idea. Um, But he also has – he ventilates his cowl now after shutdown. So I don't know how he's going to do that. You know, he puts a fan underneath there um, to to get the the turbo to cool down quicker um, when he gets back to his hangar. I don't know how he's going to handle that, you know, on on cross countries and stuff.
1: Well, he's so, missing half of his cowling anyway, so it shouldn't be an issue.
2: He's, he's buttoning it up. He's, he's in, you know, he's an experimental, so he's, he's, uh, trying to get a little more speed out of the thing. But yeah, he did have it really opened up on that. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, he just, uh, he just had a, he pulled the head off because he was getting a lot of oil, uh, pass to the heads. And, uh, fouling his plugs on one of the cylinders. And I think he just, uh, pulled that and, and figured that out and got it back together again and told me he's got an hour of flight on it and everything's working great. So he's back up in the air.
1: Yeah, he was, we've been talking about it back and forth too. Um, originally he had some low compression. We recommended he fly it for a little while. He did. The compressions came up, but he was still having the oil. You know, one time we were thinking the valve stem, but when he looked inside the, the head and he saw how much oil we were talking about, he talked to some more, uh, VW gurus that he knows and, uh, their biggest suggestion was the oil control ring. So that's why he went ahead and pulled the heads and the cylinder and replaced all the, uh, the rings on that piston and put it back together. He says he's flying, getting good compression. So we'll just have to wait and see what the final verdict is.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. Um, I hope he gets some more time on there so we can, uh, build some more fleet hours. Well, one, one more general news
1: item that I'd like to go ahead and, and mention is that uh, the FAA has finally released their new advisory circular for the uh, third-class medical reform. Uh, the new process is going to be called Basic Med. Uh, the rules and regulations will be listed now as Part 68 of the FARs, uh, which are to go into effect May 1st of 2017. So, now, this is some of the best news I've heard in quite a while.
2: Does it um, require that you have it, have had a medical in the last 10 years?
1: It, it still does that. It's all. It seems like it's all the same basic guidelines that the AOPA and EA have been talking about for quite a while now. Uh, you have to have at least some type of valid medical in the last 10 years, whether it's uh, first, second, third class, or special issuance. Uh, you will still need to... Do the the online medical self certification quiz training, whatever you want to do it, and also again get a uh, a doctor to complete the questionnaire. Uh, Originally, it was listed as a as a four page questionnaire, but it's really not a four page questionnaire for the doctor. It's really pretty much uh, like one page, twenty one items or so, and a second page of that of his. Is basically his signature attesting that he doesn't know any, of any major reasons why we can't fly. Uh, so the, it's not really as onerous as it was originally announced on the AOPA and EA sites. Uh, There's basically one page that you have to self fill out, uh, self attesting, and then you take it to your your local physician. It does have to be a physician, either medical or DO, and get them to review all the basic things and make sure you got all your body parts and and put a, put a paw print to that form, and then you just file it away.
2: I uh, recently had my uh, my third class medical renewed, and I, I was talking to my uh, examiner about this this proposed law. And I said, "Well, what if your doctor won't sign this because of some perceived liability?" And he said, "Well, you can just still give me a hundred bucks, and I'll sign it." So.
1: Yeah, they're making, they're mentioned the same thing too in this advisory circular too, that you're still free to go to all the, uh, the AMEs, you know, who are already familiar and, and probably don't have the same kind of jitters as perhaps your, your local family physician might that doesn't understand the process.
2: Well, he just said that, you know, I said, well, are you, would, if I did that, would you be you know concerned about signing something like that he he was really looking forward to this third class medical reform because he thought it was onerous for what we were trying to do he still makes his money on on second and first class medicals
0: a couple of things that jump out at me um there's been a lot of criticism that this is really no better than getting a, a medical but at the end of the day even if they use a similar checklist and you still have to to kind of run through a lot of the things you still only do this every four years and, uh, that's, that's two years longer than your third class medical is good for, for, for most of us anyway. And then secondly, you know, every two years you take an online test and you, uh, and you, and you log that in your logbook. That's pretty simple. So any complaints about the, the ongoing medical training, it's a simple thing. You just, you knock it out and you comply with it. Every four years you go talk to your family doc uh, or whoever. And, um, there's not that fear of failure um, there there is no failure. they don't send anything to the FAA so yeah if, it's more if, if a, a physician
1: doesn't want to sign it, he basically hands you the form back and you know you go fix whatever might need to be fixed and and then either seek a second opinion or go back to them and get it done
0: right. So at the end yeah. of the day it's not as good as maybe we had hoped, but I think it's still a huge improvement. Um, I'm really excited to see that we're finally there.
2: Well, those of us who have, you know, as we're aging, we're starting to get some of the normal conditions like hypertension. Um, I'm on hypertension meds, which is flagged by the FAA. It's it's okay, but I have to prove that I have my blood pressure under control. I was a little nervous going in, you know, to to um, to make sure that everything was fine, and this eliminates that.
0: Yep. Well, definitely
1: good news. Yeah, I think it's good news. I think it's gonna it'll continue to work and progress and, and and satisfy a lot of needs. I know I was in particularly looking forward to it as well. Um, so I'm I'm pretty happy it finally actually came out. You know they didn't quite drag their feet as long as I, I expected the FAA to do it. I figured they'd probably announce it in June 1st with an effective date for July 15th. But you know how it goes.
0: All right. Well, let's jump into the uh, main topic. Uh, we're going to talk rivets. Um, so I thought to, to kick us off, we we just do a a quick refresher on the types of rivets that are used in the Sonics because there's, there's all kinds of stuff in, in magazines and in various reference books on solid riveting and traditional aircraft rivets. Most of that doesn't really apply to, to the methods that we use in the Sonics. We use very simple pulled rivets. Um, Sonics is the main supplier. They say that they they buy more of this particular type of rivet than anybody else in the world. And and their rivets are a little bit different than the rivets you're going to get from all or from Aircraft Spruce or any other fastener or hardware provider. Um, they use a an all stainless steel rivet of varying lengths. And the majority of them are the short CCP-42s. And you have a bunch of intermediate lengths, the 44s, and a handful of long ones. And, and that's pretty much it. I mean, it's a... It's a pretty simple way of going. Um, you can almost just eyeball the grip length uh, just based on what looks about right, and I, I think it's a it's a great system. It, it's it's fairly foolproof. The uh, only solid rivets that are used in the Sonics is in the construction of the main spar, and this is kind of interesting because even now you hear new builders talk about wanting to get uh, an upgraded spar package because they're afraid of setting those those rivets and i think that's the wrong way of approaching it if you want an upgraded spar package where it's basically built by the factory get it because they're going to do a great job and it's going to save you a bunch of time and it's worth the money to to get that don't do it because you're afraid of solid rivets that's totally the wrong logic what do you guys think
1: well, I kind of agree. I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, it was certainly, I mean, when I came to doing my main spars, it was one of those pages uh, that I seriously studied for quite a while, I have to admit. I wanted to make sure I really understood what I was trying to accomplish, uh, that, uh, you know, you make sure they're kind of like mirror images of each other. You can't build them both simultaneously uh, to the same pattern because then they won't mate. Um, But, you know, after spending some considerable time with the plans, I just, you know, like all of our parts we make for it, you just start getting the pieces out and and start, you know, fabricating or assembling or, you know, temporarily clicoing things together to make sure you understand how the package goes together. Um, If I remember correctly now, and it's been a little while, I think I probably spent about two weeks maybe per spar, if that sounds about right to you guys.
0: Yeah, that's about right. I, I think yeah. um, I was in that same general ballpark.
2: I had taken the. Uh, I went to Oshkosh to t- take the uh, builder clinic, um, you know, five years ago, and we did go over the hand setting of those solid rivets in a uh, and and got to practice quite a bit. And it is pretty, uh, you know, it doesn't take much practice to get good at it. And we were just using a, a ball peen hammer and a and a bucking bar. Um, when I got home, I had a rivet gun and some bucking bars from and and played with them. And I I actually started using them wherever I would like inside the cockpit. Um, just from I like the look of them Uh versus the the pulled rivets.
1: Yeah. I didn't add any extra solid rivets to mine that I remember. Uh, but as far as doing my spars, uh, I did it too with the Sonics method when I went to their their workshop as well and got myself a big large-headed bolt and uh just started wailing away on those things. So, you know, you do a few at a time, and you have to take a rest, and you do a few more at a time, take a rest. I think that's what, you know, took me two weeks per spar, basically.
0: Yeah, it's more about your recovery time. You know, you figure yeah, three to yeah, four yeah. wax on each rivet. You uh, you get tired after a while. You got to take a little break, but it's not hard to to learn, and you can produce great results for for very cheap outlay of of tools.
1: Sure. Although I did start bending quite a few bolts, and I had to replace a couple of those. You know, you keep whacking on them repeatedly. I don't know what it does to metal, but it certainly softened mine up, and they would start to deform.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's just get into the. Let's talk about just general overview. And, again, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about solid rivets. Um, general overview uh, of rivets and, and riveting operations in uh, construction of uh, of a Sonics. So the, I guess the first thing I want to throw out is pulling the rivet is dirt simple. But there are ways that you can kind of go wrong. And uh, I guess we'll hit on some of those. But, but the very first way that you can go wrong Is if your hole is not properly drilled. Uh, So you you take your you take your drill bit, you drill a hole, and then you stop, slap a rivet in, and set it. Well, it's not quite that simple. Um, You need to make sure that you're using the right sized hole, and that the hole is properly deburred before you drop the rivet in. So my technique, and I think that everybody else does this also. Uh, my technique was to drill just about every hole with a pilot drill uh, sized to a number 40 drill, and that's a 332nd, approximately 332nd size. And, and the only magic about number 40 is that um, that's your standard 332nd rivet hole diameter. So for the handful of rivets out there, um, you know, that works for them. And your silver clecos will go in a number 40 hole with no problem, a little easier than they will in a 332nd hole. Then once you get your your parts lined up, then you go and you enlarge it to your final rivet size. In most cases, it's a number 30 drill or roughly an eighth-inch drill, um, and deburr it, and you're ready to go. Um, Small burrs will cause the rivet not to sit down in the hole properly, or more commonly, it'll keep the sheets from nesting together and fitting tightly. Um, So I, I think that when you get a good feel for Prepping your holes, Um, that's a lot of the initial part of just kind of getting into the rhythm of setting your rivets. Drilling your holes, up drilling them, deburring them, and then reassembling your parts and being ready to rivet at that point.
1: Well, I think generally you're right. You spend a whole lot more time prepping and, and preparing parts than you actually do riveting I think probably one of the first problems I start having, and I see it with a lot of people, too, even on the other forums, is when they start get to the point where they're ready to rivet, they just slam the rivet in there, yank up the gun, turn the pressure up, and, and rapidly pull those rivets, just as, just like shooting a gun. And I think that's where people have more problems uh, getting a good rivet set is, is on the pulling of the rivet. Uh, most of us spend the time to do the holes and the deburring now, but you can't just snap these guns. And expect a perfect pull all the time. Uh, Jeremy and even had talked about it before, uh, possibly decreasing the gun pressure down to say like 40 psi from our typical settings of 90 when we start using all of our air tools. Um, you know, I, I found that I can still pull a good rivet even at the 90 psi, but you got to do it exceedingly slow. When we talk about like shooting a gun, you wanna you wanna pull the trigger so slowly that you don't know when when the let off is gonna come. And I find when I do that, as as the rivet starts to take up with a mandrel, I'll actually feel my gun starting to hunt until it's set square. And and that's how I get a really, really good, uh, consistent uh, square set on the rivets, is going slow enough to let the gun start to pull the rivet down, pull the pieces together, and really center that gun right. Uh, I've also found, too, that when I go that slow, uh, I, I haven't had any mandrels break off proud of the rivet anymore. As I did before, I had a few of them that would break proud. And now you gotta figure out how to get rid of that extra mandrel, you know, sticking up. Some people try to use a, a center punch to push them back down. I've had to try to grind some off and being careful not to hit the rivet heads or the surrounding metal. But, yeah, it just, when you get to that point of doing the rivets and actually pulling them, take your time, really slow down, pull the trigger exceedingly slow, let yourself get a really good feel for the way the gun sets. And finally the mantle will snap and, and like I said, I just have not had any more proud rivets whatsoever.
2: Well, I'm a big fan of, of going with as low pressure as you can do it and get the gun and get it to pull and, and pop the rivet. Um, yeah, I think both you know, of them will accomplish the
1: same thing, you know, high pressure and go really, really slow. And of course, if you really drop the pressure down, it, it's going to pull slower as well. And I think you can feel the same. The, the same hunting with the gun as, as I mentioned yeah, as well.
2: The danger with the low pressure though is if you don't have quite enough, it won't pop or snap off the, uh, the mandrel. And then the, the rivet is, is work hardened. And then when you do pull again, um, it'll, you'll generally get a proud rivet or a proud, uh, mandrel.
1: Well, you, well, you must be setting your pressure really low. What kind of pressures are you talking about then?
2: i I'm, I'm talking down maybe 25 to 30 PSI.
1: Oh, see, I've never tried to pull one that low. You know, I think 40 was about the lowest I ever tried. Yeah. And yeah, again, 40, I would try to pull the trigger slow even at the, even with that.
0: 40 to 45, I think, is a good sweet spot because, John, like you're saying, if you get it to where it, you pull it up and, and, you're, and you're just kind of holding the trigger and then after a second or so it pops, um, you're, you're almost at the right pressure. You just need to go up another maybe 5 PSI and then you'll get all those same effects you get a nice, smooth, slow pull. It won't work hard. And, um, and Gary, I, I know exactly what you mean about doing it nice and slow. Um, I think it's so easy. The danger is that you can just throw a rivet in the hole and then, like you say, shoot that rivet and it pops immediately, makes a big satisfying you know, kind of clunk, and it's really satisfying to do that. But it's not really the best uh, outcome if you do it like that.
2: And I, I was also um – in the, uh, the era of when Sonic switched manufacturers of the uh, rivets and they had a batch of, um, of rivets that were, uh, I would say probably a good 25% of them snap proud. Yeah. And, I remember hearing that too. And I, I had those. And so you really had to work around trying to figure out how to make those work or you just tossed them. Sonic's ended up, you know, going with a different supplier. And we're going back to their original supplier. I don't know which one it was. And, um, and solve the problem, but there, there was a batch of them out there that I don't know what it was, but the, the mandrels just didn't snap right.
0: So I think as far as the gun setup, um, set your pressure so that they just, they just reliably pull and snap. Maybe a, a tad higher if, if you're occasionally having one that doesn't, doesn't snap off on, in one pull. Um, you can use things like swivels on the bottom of your gun to help keep the, the cord from getting tangled. Those swivels sometimes have smaller air passages, and will and will serve to slow down your flow rate and kind of, you know, it actually provides a, a benefit when you're pulling it. Maybe not so much of a benefit on something like a die grinder, but a, a kind of a, a restrictive swivel is not a bad thing on a on a rivet gun. And then you can even go one step further and put something like a flow regulator or a flow restriction installed in the gun itself, again, to force that to pull a lot slower. I know some people who have had really good luck doing both of those. Yeah, some uh, the of these other- guns get pretty
1: heavy, and I think it's easy for you to get a little wrist fatigue and get off center as well. There was two other things I would kind of recommend, too. Cleveland uh, uh, Parts or Cleveland Tools um, has a really lightweight, small-diameter, um, I don't know, I'll give us polyethylene tube system or something with little small, um, quick connectors too. And that really cuts down the weight, uh, at the end of the gun where it connects into the, uh, to the, uh, I don't know what you want to call the canister, or whatever you want to call the thing, the plunger area of it. Uh, so that frees up a lot of weight there and makes it easier to handle. Also, when I'm holding my gun, I'll actually use two hands with it if I can. I'll try to use, you know, one hand up underneath the base of the gun to take most of the weight. So again that I can as I'm starting to pull with the trigger part, I can I can easily control the trigger and again feel that hunting and shifting so I don't have so much weight pulling down from either the canister or the gun or, you know, the big long thick air hose that on there and all the other connectors and I found both of those things helped a great deal as well.
2: Oh, one of the things that I've learned um, with all of my air tools, um, especially when I was doing body work and, and spraying, is I like to put a, up uh, a pigtail um, on my all the tools. It's maybe a foot long with a quick connect on the end of that, so there you're not restricted with that big quick connect uh, junction to clip onto the actual tool. It's you got this pigtail that's just kind of flopping around and it connects to that, that that eliminates a lot of that restriction in motion when you're using the tool.
1: Sure, anything like that. I found the same thing worked pretty well, too, with the, that Cleveland tool hose system, too. It was so light and flexible, it was just easier to, easier to manage.
2: The other thing I'd like to recommend is, you know, people have spent a lot of money on some of the, the pneumatic uh, rivet guns. Um, I went with Harbor Freight, Bought their their cheapo, and then bought the uh, ten dollar um, uh, warranty on it. And I've gone through three guns, and they have no question replacing it. Once it just starts getting where it's not pulling consistently, I take it back to them and say it's not working, and then they give me a brand new gun. Um, and for twenty nine bucks, you know, I've gone through three guns, and you know, I had a lot better than spending one hundred and sixty and having one gun. My mind.
1: yeah I went the sheep route as well and it worked out pretty
2: well The other thing I'd recommend is that you got to understand how that um, the gun works especially in the nose of it um, be you know you, uh, you tend to when a, the first rivet doesn't pull right to to know that something's come out of adjustment inside that nozzle or inside that nose and how to quickly take it apart readjust it tighten it up and get those uh, those jaws to grab again. That's really all it is. It's not really the gun itself. It's just, it's, it's worked so hard. You, you're pulling 9,000 rivets. You're gonna, you're gonna wear these things out. Get them out yeah, of the adjustment. A little adjustment.
0: Well, that's a good point. Um, if your, if your cheap Harbor Freight gun is having problems, you can spend a lot of time trying to fix it. Uh, but it, it may be easier just to take it back in and, and just exchange it. Um, some guns will just keep going forever and ever, and others seem to just never work right, right from the start. Um, you just got to well, accept and that I'm, cheap gun. Just take it back.
2: Yeah, if you get a Harbor Freight and it doesn't work, well, that's your that was the risk you took, and go take it right back. Yeah. But I would recommend that's the only time I actually bought the extended warranty on a Harbor Freight tool, and it has paid off.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and let's um let's talk about another thing. If you have two sheets and you've already done your, your drilling, you, you've deburred your holes, and then you reassemble those two sheets with Clico's. Um, even with three or four or five Clico's in there, there's still enough flex in the clecos themselves that those sheets can kind of shift position ever so slightly. And that's another thing that I think sometimes gets you in trouble. You think that it's going to go back into Clico exactly like it came out. But you really have to make sure that the flex that is just always inherently going to be there that um, you don't get things out of alignment. Um, I, I think more than one builder has drilled and then deburred their tail section, put it back together on the bench and didn't take quite as much care in getting it all flat and true. Then they riveted up and find out that their tail as now has a riveted end twist. So again, um, alignment in your clecos before you actually pull the trigger is still something that, you know, you want to do that last sanity check before you set it.
1: Well, John, uh, Jeffrey, that's to bring up an interesting point. I'm not sure if we're out of sequence yet. Uh, but what about the sequencing of riveting? You know, when, we, when I was seeing s- some spars done initially, you know, we would see some results that we used to call banana spars, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, By the time they get finished riveting them all up, they had a significant curve into them, which the factory said is not really much of an issue that they can get them straightened out later on when you go to rig the wings. Have have you guys seen that effect?
0: Yeah, mine did that. Um, I I tried extremely hard to make sure that I didn't stretch the metal a little bit. You know, if you stretch every rivet just a little bit, then you're going to get some bowing in your spar. Um, One came out perfect and one came out slightly bowed.
1: Yeah, a solution for that was recommended to me by another guy. I met when I went to my builder's class at Sonics. He he was a multiple-time builder, and he suggested in particular with the spars is don't just start at one end and go straight down to the other end. You keep, you keep shoving metal ever so slightly as you go down, and you're getting those bends or that banana shape in there. So he kind of suggested, and that's what I did, but b- I have to say both of my par- spars came out perfectly straight, flat, and true, is you start a little bit in the middle. You do a few rivets. Go out to one end, do a few rivets. Go to the other end, do a few rivets. And keep hopping back and forth throughout the entire spars. You do that, and so that way you're not translating and progressively moving that metal and providing further and further and further tension to where you start to warp things. And i, I got to say, in my particular case, it worked like a charm.
2: Well, that's the same idea as, as, just, um, you know, when you, when you tighten the lug nuts on a car, you tend to do a star pattern so that you're, you're tightening the opposite side, you know, as you keep working it around.
1: Sure. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's up. easy for us to kind of get in that mindset. We got them all lined up. We got them all plugged in there. You just go bang, 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 bang as you go down. Uh, yeah. yeah I tend to do react. things from
2: center and then, you know, maybe go a quarter of the way out. And and just kind of jump back and forth when I'm riveting a line, and yeah. That tends to to, um, to to eliminate that additive yeah, I, error. I do that.
1: Would do that with everything. Although I still think I get just a tiny little bit of flex in some of my control surfaces. Uh, they all just seem like in the ailerons and that kind of stuff. You can always get just an ever so slight amount of twist. And even using that that method, sometimes I just can't seem to get it. You know, exactly perfect, but.
2: Well, the yeah. way you fly, it doesn't really matter.
1: Yeah, it doesn't make a difference. It helps me with my loops and spins and rolls anyway. I, all I have to do is just let go of the stick, and it takes care of it for me.
0: Well, Gary, you're right. Um, the first spar is the one that was bowed, and I came to the same conclusion that I was i was just kind of stretching the metal and pushing it as I went down the length of the spar. The second one, I did exactly what you're talking about. Um, I, I made sure I riveted in a little bit of areas all the length of the spar, to, to lock in the alignment and then go back and fill in the gaps. And that one came out perfectly straight. Yep. Um, based on that, when it came time to rivet things like uh, piano hinges on uh, large sections of sheet, things like that, um, I, I took that same experience and I, and I applied that to all the other riveting tasks. Don't run down the line because, again, you can be incrementally just sort of pushing metal as you go until when you get the end. The holes don't line up, or you've got a significant twist. If you jump back and forth, hit the middle, hit the ends, come back, hit more in the middle, it's going to go down a lot straighter. Seems to work. Yeah, I think that's definitely a best practice for for any riveting on the Sonic, solid or pulled. All right, well, um, let's talk a little bit about the flush rivets used. Um, So under the normal kit, uh, the only flush rivets that are on there uh, are on the leading edge of the wing. And so Sonic sells what they call their super simple dimple die, which is just a, a very simple machined, uh, match set of dies that run on a, on a mandrel. Um, after that mandrel breaks, you just replace it with a finishing nail and you buy a box of them and you just replace them every so often when they break. Uh, I think a lot of people, especially ones that have built other metal airplanes, they look at that and they, and they think that's a rather unsophisticated way to dimple the surface and to provide flush rivets um but i got to say that i think it actually works really well it's very easy to do it's easy to produce good results the rivets fit nice in those in those dimples i never had any problem at all
2: i just find it really tedious um you know cuz you you basically you, you you up drill it you you deburr it then you have to set up this um this you know the die around it then you pull your you usually use a hand rivet gun or hand rivet squeezer, and then pull it all apart because the 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 little mandrel gets teeth on it after being pulled enough, and it's hard to pull back out of the gun. And it's just it's it's tedious, but it works real well.
1: Yeah, your mandrels again were my nails. I, that's all I had. It was nails. so I had to keep going and buying extra nails. But originally, I think I was always pulling too hard and just snapping those nails out. And you really don't have to pull that hard for that.
2: I wasn't breaking them. I was just deforming them with teeth. Yeah. And then uh, yeah,
1: they deformed and break for me.
2: Yeah.
0: I just keep a file and I'd knock down the little teeth marks, and you get another five or six poles out of them until they get so bad you got to replace them. There you go. Yeah,
2: I played with the uh, the fancy ones that the vans guys have, and they're, they are a superior way to to dimple, but you know you're going to spend a little money on that.
1: Yeah, I do have a, a separate hand squeezer where you can exchange all the dimple dies in there as well, uh, but then you're still kind of limited. I mean, they, they come in different uh, yokes as far as length you know, like one-inches or three-inches or so forth. So you really can't use them to, to go all the way along our leading-edge surfaces. I know they make some table-mount uh, tools. Yeah, the big
2: C-frames.
1: Yeah, C-frames that Cleveland was putting out there. That would have been nice, too. But, again, I don't know. For for, for one production runoff, I'm not so sure it's worthwhile. I, I got around doing fairly well with the dimple dies. Uh, but again, I think we need to caution, and I think it was mentioned before, at least in some of the instructions somewhere. You actually need to undersize the holes that you plan to countersink and dimple die. So, for example, if you're if you normally were setting um, a three thirty second rivet, like in a nut plate or something, uh, you wouldn't necessarily use a forty to drill your hole. You'd want to go something like a forty one, because by the time you actually dimple the hole, it, it does expand it a little bit. And same thing with your, uh, your, your number 30 rivets as well. Uh, you need to go just maybe one drill bit size, number smaller, uh, to get a better fit with a rivet into the dimple.
0: Yeah, I think that, um, if you use a number 32 and then you get the dimple die into that number 32, dimple it, it will stretch to a perfect fit on a, on a eighth inch rivet. rivet. Um, yeah. If you, if you first drill the full size with a number 30, it's going to be oversized, and then you're going to have things like a wobbly fit or it's going to break proud when it actually does break. Yep. So the good thing is there's only, uh, I don't know how many, a few hundred rivets in, that need to be set in the leading edge of the wings, so none of that is, is very hard to do.
2: There's quite a bit in the spar box, too, where it has to slide through.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, that's true.
1: Yeah, we had some on the top, Lingeron, in the cockpit where you have the canopy that comes down and seats and a few little places like that. Yeah.
0: About the, the C-frame, um, using a dimple set and things like that, if you have those tools, great. They're going to be probably more enjoyable to use. Um, but it goes back to the earlier point. None of this stuff is required. When Sonic says you can get good, acceptable, safe results using low-tech tools like the Dimple die or like the Big Bolt, they're not lying. You really can get good, acceptable, safe results, and it's a whole lot cheaper. So if you want to buy the tools, buy them. But if not, buy their simple stuff and and uh, and just move out on it.
2: Well, if you're going to get insane and do a completely uh, flush riveted Sonics, which is available, you're you're going to want those upgraded tools.
1: You know, having manually driven those main spars with a bolt. Uh, you know, any builder asked me, I would not recommend it. I think I'd learn how to use a pneumatic gun next time.
2: Yeah, the pneumatic guns are, are super simple. And yeah, you're a hundred and some dollars into the rivet gun and yeah, it's, it's worth it.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I don't have a pneumatic gun. Um, I'm sure I could borrow one, but I've got my big bolt that did two airplanes and, uh, um, I had no problem. I would do another set with them and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, let's talk about, um, the, the dimple dies themselves. Um, so we already talked about, uh, buy extra nails for when you break them. Uh, you're going to wear the, the, the mandrel out just with the teeth marks from the jaws. You're going to break them eventually. When you squeeze them too hard, you're going to lose them. So buy a box that, that fit well, and then, uh, just have them on hand and change them out frequently. The other thing that I'd recommend is, is buy two dimple die sets. Uh, one, you can grind the flange down to get in tight, like, like on the underside of your leading edge ribs, you're going to want to grind it down a little bit to get into some of those tight corners anyway. And then when you're, when you're dimpling the leading edge, a lot of the time spent dimpling is just the changeover time. You put the, you put the, the mandrel through the hole, you stick the other side of the dimple die set on it, then you put your gun on and you squeeze it Then you take the whole thing apart, pull it out of the hole and go to the next one. Well, if you do that with two mandrels, you're you're saving a lot of transition time because you put two mandrels together in two different holes. You put put the other halves on and you squeeze them both, and so it cuts down that transition time. So just buy two, grind one, keep the other set uh, unmodified, and then you'll uh, you'll save a bunch of time when it comes time to do the leading edge.
1: You know, when you talk about modifying tools, don't be afraid to gr- get some extra uh, hand. Rivet guns too, and grind down one face of that as well for the same purpose to be able to get up, up next snug to some of the spars and ribs and other areas that you can't get a, a full seat.
2: And get the get the hand rivet gun that has a swiveling head. That has been such a big help for me to be able to turn that thing around to the right angle. I think Harbor uh, Freight sells them.
0: Yeah, another place that Harbor Freight is good. You know, you spend fifteen bucks on a on a rivet gun a hand rivet gun, and who cares if you grind it all to pieces and you only use it for a handful of rivets on your whole airplane? It's only 15 bucks. Uh it, It's a good investment to, to set that one hard-to-reach rivet.
1: Yeah, I, I think I've got two hydraulic pullers and probably three or four hand pullers, and, you know, half of them are modified and, and, and ground-off. You know, another way to get up on some of these areas, too, uh, even sometimes even with the, with with the ground-off ones as well, is I've had to make a wedge out of a piece of metal and drill a hole in there for the mandrel to come up with. So if you can kind of envision this, you would you would set your, your rivet down in your material as usual, put your wedge then on top of the rivet, and then set your gun in there. You can offset your angle a little bit just by bending the mandrel, where you can get just a little bit of extra clearance in order to get those things set. And that, that's another trick that helps sometimes as well.
2: I think I've used a uh, a carpenter sheath's hoof to do that. You just kind of stick it in there, you know, normally for pulling a nail out of a board, but it's the small one. And you can kind of straddle the the mandrel there, get that angle, and then pull the the mandrel up. So I've yeah, hunted just, through my toolboxes for all kinds of different things.
1: Yeah, I would just take a piece of, like, L-angle or something like that, you know, a good eighth inch uh, or three sixteenth inch metal. And like I said, take it over to you know your your Scotch Brite or, or disc sand or belt sand or whatever it is, and just make yourself a nice little wedge. You know, punch a hole in it, and you got a, you know a pennies tool.
0: Yeah, the wedge is definitely going to pay off. There, there are a lot of rivets in corners that the the body of the rivet gun just gets in the way. You you can't get a straight approach to keep the head square. So the yeah, wedge allows you to come in at a slight angle and still have the head of the rivet nice and flat and in good contact with the work. Uh one of the other things I think that that I used a lot is um these little wheel collars, you know, coming from an RC background, uh you use these little metal plated wheel collars to hold wheels on to axles. Well, those wheel collars will slip down over the mandrel of the rivet and uh and make it like a little standoff. And so there's a lot of times where just being able to Get the gun a little bit higher, you know, three-eighths of an inch higher on the surface will resolve some of that, that clearance issue. And so that little standoff worked great for that kind of stuff. That's a good idea.
2: Yeah, as long as your uh, gun can
0: grab the mandrel,
2: sometimes you get up a little higher and it, the, the jaws won't, won't grip
0: it. Right, right. And then in cases like that, um, if you have uh, a particularly tricky one, use a longer rivet Pull the mandrel out of the long rivet and stick it in your shorter grip length. Because that, the total length of the, of the long rivet mandrel is longer than your short rivet mandrel. So. I never even have,
2: thought of that. That's yep, a great idea.
0: Go get a 44, pull the mandrel out, stick it in your 42, and now you get that little extra length that you're missing. So it does cost you a few extra cents for the, for the rivet that you, you kind of consume, but uh, normally it's, it's insignificant. Uh the other thing, uh I since we're kinda talking tools, um drill bits. The uh one of the best drill bits that I had were my long, flexible twelve inch drill bits. Um man you can use those things on everything. You can almost go around a corner, a ninety degree corner, with a twelve inch long drill bit. Uh and those are, are fantastic for drilling tight areas.
1: Yep, I'm glad you mentioned that. I actually need to order a couple of new ones by the way. <laughs>
0: Uh, so I do know, you, snap
1: those every once in a while though I gotta admit.
0: Yeah. you can buy um, you know, the snake drills and the little threaded uh drill bit attachments, you know. Um but one of the other things that I would do is I would just take a regular jobber length drill bit and uh and just break it off so it'll only like half inch long and then chuck up the remaining half inch in the jaws of my ninety degree air drill and then um use that for really tight areas. And not quite as as precise as a nice threaded drill bit and a snake drill. But for down and dirty, um, it worked really well. All right, we talked about uh, the solid rivets in the spar. Uh, one thing that we didn't talk about was a few of those solid rivets uh, in the root area are, are in a real tight area. You've got a stiffener that sits on the on the spar, and then there's very little room between this stiffener, which is a piece of angle extrusion, um, and the spar cap itself. So I found that a selection of bolts uh, made that work a lot easier. I had my big bolt for doing all my normal rivets, and then I had a slightly smaller bolt that was kind of ground down to fit down in between the, the spar cap and that stiffener. And there's one line of rivets that are notoriously hard to get to. So you might need a couple of different bolts to, to be able to get into some of those tight areas.
1: Actually, if, I'm, if I kind of remember, didn't we have to back... Back
0: rivet those from the opposite side. Of uh, I don't remember back riveting those. There were some other ones that you do in the in the spar tunnel,
1: but I yeah, don't uh,
0: that's what I'm talking about. I think it was the spar tunnel. Yeah. So I, I think I had three different bolts. I had my really big bolt, which you know was was really big, and it didn't deform at all. And then I had two slightly smaller bolts, and uh, and they were kind of customized to get around in those tight areas. And those bolts would routinely deform. They would only get you know x amount of use out of them, and then you'd have to swap them out with a new a new shaft. All right, let's uh, let's talk about nut plates. Um, surprisingly, uh, the plans don't really call for a lot of nut plates on a Sonics, but there's a ton of areas where most builders are going to want to put nut plates, and I think that they're a much more elegant way of attaching things rather than trying to always put a bolt on and a nut on the backside or some other other attachment so where did you guys use nut plates on on your airplanes
1: oh now they they've almost become my my new best friend uh, i have these things not necessarily my all my sonics that i've already built uh, but my current project i'm working on uh, i'm using them extensively i would have to say uh, i tried a couple of different ways with my sonics you know there's all there's nut plates and there's actually something called rib nuts if you know what i'm talking about uh, you actually have to drill an oversized hole and you slide this shaft of a nut inside the hole and use a special tool, uh, to clamp it down similar to a rivet and that you're pulling the, the backside in to expand it and actually, and actually seat in the metal kind of like a rivet does. Uh, the problem, problem I found that is that over time, uh, that rib nut can start to lose its grip on the metal. And so now as you go to take the screw or bolt out, it just starts to spin right along with that as well. And, of course, now you're kind of stuck. You can't really get to the backside of it. Um, I mean, it's very difficult to drill out and get them out without even enlarging the hole anymore. So I've even though I had a whole complete set and tool for those, I've kind of shied away from from those rib nuts and like the nut plates much better.
0: Yeah, so... Um Anything you mount to the firewall is just a a natural for a nut plate. You're not going to want to be able to try to get somebody else with a wrench on the inside of your cockpit or potentially up high where it's behind the fuel tank. Do yourself a favor. Anything you're going to attach to the firewall, put it on a nut plate. You'll thank yourself down the road.
1: How do you go about installing your nut plates? I do it the cheap way.
0: Uh, I just, I dimple them myself. I, I just get regular old nut plates, I dimple them, and I attach them with three thirty seconds rivets.
1: Well, I was talking about actually figuring how to do them. It, if people are not real familiar with nut plates, it's basically, it basically looks like a nut with two wings, and the wings each have a hole that you use to set rivets through to hold it in place so that as you turn the bolt or screw, the nut or nut plate does not rotate as well. They actually make a special tool for those where you, you drill your hole for the bolt that you want, you set this tool on top, and it, they come in all various sizes for the nut plates, and it has two holes where the wings would be, and you just drill through those. You can do the, accomplish the same thing without the tool, if long as you can still get to the back side of the plate that you want to do. You just take your, your nut plate and set it after you drill your main main hole for the, for the, the nut or bolt. You put the nut plate upside down on top of your surface where you can see the wings and the, the two holes in the wings, uh, slide your bolt from the back side to hold the, the nut plate in place. Uh, if you can, clamp one side of the wings down, drill one hole, Clico, then drill the second hole, take it apart, and, of course, deburr it. And then now you would put the nut plate on the back side where you need the nut, and then you're ready to, to go ahead and pop the rivets and use it as well. So you can do it without even having any special tools whatsoever.
0: That's the way I do it, Gary. I went one step further. Uh, I just took a one of my clecos and I would drill my pilot hole, like a number thirty pilot hole, in the center. Now that pilot hole will be enlarged for the the screw that go through. But initially, I drill my my pilot hole. I have a, a nut plate on a cleco that I put a little um, piece of like shrink tubing, and I built up a couple of layers of concentric layers of shrink tubing around the shank of the cleco so that it fits tightly inside the nut plate. And that was my my permanent nut plate on a CLECO drill template. And I would just stick it on, and then I would drill right through the nut plate as, as a drill guide and drill my two rivet holes and then pull it off and then install a, a different nut plate on there. And uh, and that thing just sat in my toolbox uh, on a CLECO forever like that.
2: And they do make a commercial ways
0: to do the same thing.
2: template that does it too, and it works really well. I don't have one, but I've seen them.
0: Yeah, there are other areas that nut plates are really handy. Um, your inspection panels on the, the aft fuselage or underneath the wings. Uh, the plans show just real basic um, self-tapping screws that hold those covers in place. Um, it works. It's not real elegant. Nut plates are a great way to, to make that a lot easier to pull those inspection panels on and off. Uh, some people have a reason to get their wingtips off or their tail tips or stuff like that. Um, although i would not necessarily recommend going that route i didn't do that um, but if you think you have a reason to to be able to get access to something put nut plates in it um, it'll make it a lot easier than trying to modify it later um, and then the last place for either a nut plate or a riv nut is that that really pesky forward bolt hole in your in your front windscreen uh, that one is really hard to get to and normally if you have a a screw through the, the front corner, it's way up there by the by the upper firewall strap. You can't get a tool in there unless you have orangutan arms. You can't reach it with a wrench. Um, that's another area where a rib nut or a nut plate up there would make your life a whole lot easier.
1: Yeah, I use rib nuts along that line, but, again, I, I would try to shy away from the rib nuts if you can use a standard nut plate. Right.
0: Or, or Also, a when we talk about...
1: When we talk about nut plates. Have you guys noticed that they're extremely hard to get a screw or bolt into?
0: Some of them are. Yeah, um, I've actually taken a tap and kind of loosen them up a little bit.
1: Yeah, that's what I I universally do because as, as people look at nut plates, if you look at the back where the nut where the nut actually is, it's basically crimped. It's pinched down some to make a really tight tight fit. I know I've heard some people when I tell them the same thing, that I use a tap die there to open those things up and make them easier to get in and out, have told me that they were concerned about things working their ways loose. I can say that I've actually had no experience with those things still working loose, but it makes them a whole lot more useful to get in and out. Otherwise, you're going to eat up a couple of screws. Or bolts, just trying to enlarge those things, trying to feed those in. So, just take a, a number eight, you know, eight by thirty-two or ten by thirty-two, whatever size nut plate that you're using, and tap those things out at least once before you install them, and make your life a lot easier.
0: And the tap is is tapered, so you don't have to run it all the way down. If you're concerned about that, only run it part way down.
1: Just open yeah, the threads up to an extra tight fit, but at, yeah. at least halfway or partway through, it will make it a lot more enjoyable to, to use. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, uh, something else that comes to mind, um, Clicos. So, um, you know, we use a lot of silver Clicos in the 332nd size and the copper Clicos in the 8th inch size, and um, not quite as many of the, the 532nds um, for the the spar rivets.
2: But it, it, there's
0: always the question of how many Clicos is enough Clico. So just taking a quick informal poll, Gary, how many Clicos did you find was an appropriate number?
1: Uh, I think I'm up to about 300 silver and copper, and probably about two. Well, I need more of the fives now, so I'm, i got a, at least 200 or so uh, of the black ones as well now. So you, you can never have too many Clicos. Uh, it, it's, it's certainly worth buying twice as much as you think you're ever going to need. I know they're fairly pricey uh but when you're trying to do large projects and get a lot of stuff in there you'll use an awful lot of Clicos. and you you don't want to have to be looking at your other parts say well can I scrounge a couple of Clicos from this one to put it into this part why I need to, to temporarily hold
0: it yeah absolutely uh take your best guess and then double it and if you're in the 300 400 range you're probably about right John, yeah at least
2: i have a couple hundred of the silver and a couple hundred of the of the um coppers um maybe i don't know 30 or 40 of the the black ones, and then um, a half or a dozen or so of the uh, the brass 3/16. ones. Three sixteenths. Yeah, yeah. I also bought those um, little CLECO uh, the clamps. Boots. Yeah, the boots. Oh, I know
1: oh, the CLECO clamps. Yeah, I've got a few of those too.
2: Um, I've used them periodically. I thought they were really cool. I never, you know, I don't think you need them, but they're they're around. They're in they're in a toolbox that I. Uh, have used
1: yeah they're just they're just precious aren't they john
2: (laughs) they're cute and boy they they will pinch you (laughs) oh they will oh yeah come over i'll uh, i'll give you a pinch
0: well you mentioned the boots um you know those little cleco smileys are really frustrating because um once you get a a dent like that you're not going to be able to get it out easily so those boots in certain areas are really uh, beneficial as well
1: yeah, you know, I never really noticed too much problem with, with, with the dimplings from just the Cleco itself. Usually my problem is I'd have a Cleco in it and not, not realize it when I'm repositioning something and just, you know, bend the whole Cleco and of course you, you, mess up the metal a little bit too. So I'm not sure the boot would have helped my ignorance on that part anyway. Well,
0: uh, what I always like to say is, you know, how, how many Clecos do you need? Um, just ten more. No matter how many you have, you're going to need just ten more.
1: Yeah, there there could even be times when you use a couple of stubby clecos too. They make really short ones too. And there were a couple of times on my Sonics project, I wish I'd had a, you know at least three or four of the stubby ones in, in the silver and and uh, one eighth inch size.
0: All right, so we touched on a couple of these areas. Um, the the hard to rivet areas. Um, we talked about the spar tunnel. One of the difficulties on the spar tunnel is that you gotta. For some of those rivets, you gotta, you gotta reach in there and, um you need a really, really short, compact rivet gun to be able to get in there. You're never gonna get your pneumatic rivet gun in there. It's gonna have to be with a manual rivet gun. What other hard to rivet areas come to mind?
1: Mm, the only two ones I remember was the spar tunnel you said and then just this, the main spars themselves up underneath, uh, uh, that angled flange uh, that's milled into the spar, the, those were the two tight, most tight ones, I think. I think I had a couple of problems with some of the root ribs, too. but um,
0: Yeah, well, the root rib it sits real close to the, to the second rib, and so some of those areas yeah. are really tight, and you can't get a pneumatic gun in there either. You're doing nose by hand.
1: Oh, I do remember one more spot, too, that was troublesome, too, and that's back on the elevator horn uh you've got a series of rivets back there into that uh um welded component that they use and some of those are really pretty tight pretty hard to set with a rivet gun as well
0: a mm-hmm. couple other areas um the underseat structure uh there's a lot of c channel pieces that are in there and uh, a lot of those you have to come in slightly sideways so if you have a wedge uh, or you can use some sort of thing to to clear the c channel that makes it a lot easier. Otherwise, those are really difficult to, to get straight. You get a lot of tilted rivets if you're not careful. And then the, uh, the last part that comes to mind is is in the tail section, the, the, the last bulkheads in, in the aft fuselage, there's some extruded angle brackets that are back in there. And same thing, axis is really tight. The fuselage sides are, are rapidly coming together, and there's not a lot of room to maneuver the gun to to set those rivets. So those can be um, pretty difficult. Again, a highly modified ground on handset gun uh will generally take care of those ones back there.
2: Yeah I noticed with the, the way X because we have the doublers back there in the very uh the tail end of the fuselage um, very tight to get into those uh the rivet lines right up against the um, right up at the end there.
0: Okay, uh, we talked about deburring. Um, a couple of things come to mind. Um, you, you don't want to over deburr. You, you know, you're not countersinking these holes. You're just knocking off burrs. And so, if you use um, a hand, one of those little uh, kind of bent hook shape, you know, deburring tools, you know, one or two trips around is all it takes to knock the burr off. If you do it more than that, you're just going to start to put a, a countersink on it. So you got to make sure you don't countersink it. Um, you can use um, things like a large drill bit to knock it down. Uh, but one of the things that I like to do, especially on the underside of, of the rib flanges, is just use a really small, uh, fine file, and it just knocks that burr right down, and you can just kind of zip right under on the underside of the ribs, knock all the burrs down in, in one stroke, and you're done.
1: Well, I have a couple of other options for you, too. Uh, you can also use sandpaper for, you know, a couple little tight spots. I mean, it takes a little bit of work, but it can get in there. Um, as far as the rivet tools and uh, the deburring tools themselves, yeah, I got to say, by the time I came to the wing and I started looking at all those holes, I figured I needed a better mousetrap. And what I did is, is I went to uh, I think it was Home Depot or something like that and bought myself a sc- electric screwdriver. They turn very, very slow. I then took one of those, uh, fluted tips that you would have on the, uh, the crooked spinny thing that you're talking about. Because mm-hmm. they unscrew. They're like a quarter 28 thread or something like that. They just screw right out because they're replaceable. And I welded that tip uh, onto a little extension, a little hex extension that would fit into the screwdriver like you would put regular, you know, screw bits into. And so now I've got one that I can just, I can, I can charge up. It turns very slowly. I accomplish the same thing as using a hand spinner, except I'm not spinning my hand, and I can just go bang, 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 bang down the line. And I got to say, it works like a charm, uh, especially I, when you start getting those this part where you got a thousand holes to deburr for one piece.
2: Now, since I wasn't polishing, I went with a um, a pneumatic angle grinder, and Harbor Freight sells a uh, the Scotch Brite pads for them. And so I just put a Scotch Brite pad on this angle grinder, and you just hit it with one one hit, touch touch the hole, and it'll deburr nicely. Oh, sh-
1: sure, yeah, yeah. If you're going to polish, that would be a great way to do it. The, the second thing, when we talk about those those fluted bits, I have since uh, gone to the single flute bit uh, for these for these for these holes to deburr, and I find you don't get so much chattering because sometimes as you use those 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 two or three flute. Uh, D burr ones. If you look at the where it cuts out the metal, you see a lot of little fine jagged lines in there. Some, and I finally I get a much much smoother hole by using the single flute.
0: And then watching the um, the, the pre built spars being manufactured there um, at Oshkosh, they lay all those those webs out, and they hit them with a dual action palm sander, and they knock them all down, and they switch to a slightly finer and polish the metal back out. And they do the entire thing in about two minutes.
1: Um, Yeah, I polished my, I I sanded my spars down too, but when I'm talking about for the wing skins and all those areas that I was polishing, you know, I couldn't quite do the same process, but I I did a a random orbital sand or two on my spars to get them nice and smoothed out.
2: Well, John Monet showed me his technique when I was taking my builder's clinic and it was just a straight edge ruler and uh, scraped it along the the back of the the holes to deburr them.
0: Yeah, and that's essentially what I like to do with my little, my little th- three inch file. Same thing. You just knock the burr off and kind of knock it right down and in one swipe you can do the underside of a rib flange just like that.
2: Of course he always would then finish up saying, you know, we're building an airplane, not a watch.
0: Yeah. Okay, well what about fixing mistakes? Um, so we talked about some of the common mistakes about either the rivet breaking proud or the head not sitting down square on the part that you riveted, um, I, I think most of the time, you know, the mistake is either to accept it uh, and, and it's not critical, so you know, accept it or drill the rivet out. So, what what's the best technique for for drilling those rivets out?
2: A good sharp cobalt bit, drilled slow,
1: very very slow,
2: with I constant would also pressure.
1: Taking a center punch. And, and at least punching once right down in the center of that hole. Sometimes I've found that the mandrels are really kind of close or almost flush uh, with the top of the rivet head, and it's hard to get the drill bit to sit down there perfectly square like you want. It gets off-centered a little bit, and you can easily start getting an elongated hole and having trouble getting that, that rivet out. So if you just take a spring punch, uh, punch it once right in the center to try to knock that mandrel down a little bit. You can sometimes get the tip of your drill bit to start to, uh, to center and start to drill and eat the eat the rivet head out. But you have to go very very slow with a very very sharp bit for these steel. And,
2: and if you even drills. smoke that uh, the rivet with the drill bit, the the drill bit's no good anymore. So get another one.
0: Yeah. The other thing which um, I found really helpful, if the rivet tries to spin on you and you know, you can always get a pair of pliers or, you know, dykes on the backside and hold the rivet. But a lot of times you don't have access to the inside of the part for the rivet, your, your rivet you're drilling out. If you, instead of coming exactly perpendicular on the head, if you just can it, you know, 10 degrees or so, it'll, it'll kind of bind the rivet against the side of the work and it won't spin anymore. And so you don't want to go all the way through, but you can get most of the way through the hole slightly off-centered and then get your punch in there and break the head off and punch your rivet out. Um, and and it, if it starts to spin, uh, it really kind of locks that thing in place and allows you to finish drilling it
1: out. Yeah, a spinning rivet can really be tough to get out. They do—they actually have one, but they do make a specialty tool um, that it basically has a, a drill bit uh, with a, I guess, kind of like a shaft that rides on the outside of the drill bit. So as you, you, you grab that shaft, you push it down on the top of the rivet head to kind of lock it in place as you use your as you spin the drill bit with your drill uh, to try to get those things out with spinning it, without spinning the rivets, too. So that's another option. But, of course, you have to, unfortunately, buy another tool.
0: Okay. And then uh, for the rivet mandrels that break proud of the surface, um, like you mentioned before, trying to get a Dremel tool and grind that down, um, that can be really tough because a lot of times you're gonna just mar up the, the top of the rivet especially if you're going to polish you're not going to want those those marks from a, a grinding stone that slipped a little bit I think in a lot of cases there it's just it's just better to get a punch and just tap that that mandrel lower into the surface or out completely um, and the strength of these rivets assumes that the rivets shank is is not in place it's just the body of the rivet so um, one or two that, that come out, it's not going to be a, a major problem. But uh, I think you, you probably set yourself up for more disappointment trying to grind a whole ton of them if you're not extremely careful. Yep, it's tough. And then, John, you mentioned the, uh, the bad rivets. You know, the, the, the very first rivets had like a ball on the end of the mandrel, and that ball would pull up and, and set the rivet. Then they switched over to, like, the chisel design, or it just looked like you took a chisel and whacked off the mandrel, and it was slightly bulbed out a little bit, but it was definitely a chisel look to it. And then the, the latest generation, are a chisel design also, but it's much more pronounced, kind of a swollen um, piece at the bottom of the chisel. So if you have some of those intermediate rivets, you can try and use them. You can try and make them work. It's going to be a lot better if your holes fit really tight and you pull them slowly, but if you're just not getting good results, you may want to just retire those for some other project and, and buy some new ones and uh, save yourself some grief. Well, along that line, um, I'm amazed how many times I hear people say that they have to buy extra rivets and they're, they're disgruntled. Like somehow Sonic's cheated them out of all the rivets they needed. I don't think it's unusual to have to buy a few extra rivets here and there. <laughs> I really don't think this is the type of thing that you know should, should cause anybody a lot of heartburn. You're going to drop rivets, you're going to you're going to draw rivets out, you're going to put rivets in the wrong spots, and want to fix them. You just probably just need to anticipate that you're going to buy a, a couple hundred extra rivets in various sizes, and just not worry about it. Uh, I've even seen people take a bag of a hundred rivets, spread them out on the bench, and count them to see if Sonics was giving them a hundred rivets. That's probably going a little bit too far. I would say. Don't get hung up on the little things. If you need more rivets, buy an extra bag and don't worry about it. Yeah, I know I had to
1: buy a few hundred,
0: two or three hundred at least.
2: I quit counting. It's just part of the project.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, did we miss anything? Any any other tips or things that we've kind of learned the hard way or, or did we pretty well run this one down?
1: Well, I think we cover a lot of area, but again, the biggest thing is just, you know, either set your gun pressure, you know, down to the 40, 45 PSI range, uh, use two hands of the gun, pull it slowly, and I think you'll get much more consistent and enjoyable results.
2: Practice a bit too. I mean, if you're really nervous about it, you're gonna get really good after your 9,000th rivet, but uh, you know, spend, spend a little time popping 50, 60 rivets. See, uh, and, and try to make mistakes to kind of learn how it, how they look when you do screw up, like not getting your gun square against the, uh, the work surface or you don't have it pressed down in and, and the rivet isn't quite seated when you pull it. That's the thing I had to learn quite a bit was pulling it with it, not pushed in all the way.
0: Right. That's one of the very first things I did is I took some of my scrap, I drilled a bunch of holes and I just practice setting rivets with various techniques. You know, what happens if I push really hard? What happens if I don't have it seated down or if I if I tilt the head over? Um, you know, all those little variations. Take a dozen rivets and try out different techniques and, and, and do mistakes on purpose to see how they look. Oh, oh I and then drill I, them out. Then yeah, fix it. Just, you know, educate yourself at the beginning, and then you're going to know what it takes to set a good rivet and, and what types of mistakes are going to lead to, um, you know, how the rivet looks when it's actually been set. So you can look at that and say, oh, yeah, I must not have had the thing held held tight enough or it wasn't quite square because you've already kind of practiced all those things. You know what to look for.
2: And plus, you're probably going to have people coming over to help, you know, neighbors, friends, family. Um, they're going to want to help rivet, and it's fun to have them, give them the gun, And but you're going to have to show them what to do. And they're going to screw one up, and you're going to have to drill it out.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, but... They're going to remember setting rivets on a plane, and not just a project plane, but a plane that is actually going to fly, and they're going to remember that. It really makes a big impact on people when they actually set a rivet for real and help you on your airplane.
1: Yeah, I did the same thing with some of my neighbors, too, just kind of invite them over so that way they didn't complain so much when I cranked up the engine (laughs) and taxi down the street. No, 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 I didn't say that. (laughs)
0: Well, it's good. You know, you got to spread the, uh, spread the enthusiasm to anybody that'll listen. So get them involved. (laughs) All right. Well, I think we'll put this one to rest. Um, there, there's no substitute for a a little bit of experimentation in your technique and your setup. And, uh, and, and I guess my, my final thought is if you set a bad rivet, don't fret over it. Don't, don't knock yourself out trying to Trying to get around it, just drill the thing out and do it over. You're, you're very likely to drill that rivet out with no damage whatsoever and just put a new rivet in and, and call it good. Um, I think, I think there's a natural, um, tendency to avoid doing that early in the project. By the end, you're not going to think twice about drilling out a line of rivets because you need to do something. So just acknowledge that right from the beginning. And when it comes up, just do it and don't worry about it.
1: Yeah, I originally thought I needed to practice drilling out rivets. I found I didn't really need to worry about practicing. You're going to have plenty of uh, education along the way. But, John, if you only had to do 9,000 rivets, you must have had the quick build kit, which I know you didn't because I think I was getting closer to ten or 11,000 rivets.
2: Oh, I I, I used the 9,000 because I think that's what's in the plans. Hmm. I'm, I'm sure I have a lot more than that.
0: Well, you didn't build one of your tail surfaces either, so, you know. No, that's that's right. the I, yeah.
2: They shorted me a whole tail surface. <laughs> So oh, there's one one thing I'd like to add that okay. we didn't really talk about, and that's the aluminum rivets that that are part of the kit. in um, when oh. when working with the fiberglass components and you're riveting into those, if you use the stainless steel ones, you're going to tend to probably pull the rivet right through the fiberglass because of the way it it takes so much more force. And on all the the uh, fiberglass components, I used aluminum rivets.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you remember. I'm glad you remember that. Yeah, I would I would certainly suggest too just using aluminum because when you need to go take one of those fiberglass pieces off you'll never get those stainless steel rivets out i think they're just going to spin and spin and spin the aluminums will be much
2: easier to get out and there's no reason to have the the sheer strength of the stainless steel in there because no, the it's just fiberglass cosmetic. is going to rip out anyway yeah and they're they're about a third the price and really easy to pull
0: One of the things I used um, the large head uh, fabric rivets in the tail surfaces. It, you know, it's got a built-in washer in in the large diameter head, and it even further spreads the load out over those those uh, thinner sort of tail tips and things like that. And um, if the head was resting directly on the fiberglass, where possible, I substituted those large head rivets, and I haven't had any kind of cracking or any problems whatsoever. They're still a fairly low-profile head, so they look like they belong, and they're not real obtrusive-looking. So uh, that's something to keep in mind.
1: Yeah, you wouldn't want to add any more drag, would you?
0: Oh, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Well, uh appreciate all your comments and your thoughts. Um, I I got just uh, one quick shout-out here. Um, You know, looking back over 2016, uh, I think it was a fairly productive year for Sonics Builders, uh, I just went back and, and kind of had a quick look at the completions over, over the year, and there were at least a couple of dozen Sonics and Y-X that were that were flown and entered into the completions database. There were a number of 1Xs, uh, at least one Xenos, and two subsonics that flew. So that's a pretty successful year for, for Sonics coming to completion. So congratulations to all those builders last year that made their first flights. Absolutely. Yep. All right, guys, well, uh, our next show uh, is going to be episode 13, and this is the AeroV assembly and operations tips. Uh, We've been teeing this one up, and we're just about ready to do it. Um, As many of you know, uh, Joe Norris has has returned to the EAA and uh, will no longer be working full-time over at Sonic's. So as a result, uh, we've had to kick this one upstairs and, uh, John Monette himself is gonna, is gonna be on the show and he's gonna run through these assembly and operation tips with us. So it's gonna be a fantastic show, really looking forward to it. And, uh, that's gonna be definitely one to, to watch. Um, even if you don't have an V, just the, the 40 or 50 years of experience that John brings to, to building engines, I think it's gonna be worth having a listen. So for this episode, you can find the show notes, um, once again, uh, the website of www.sonicsflight.com slash 1-2 uh, for episode 12, uh, take you directly to the show notes for the various news stories we talked about. Uh, you can subscribe to the show in iTunes or Google Play uh, or your favorite podcast app, uh, or you can go to the website and listen to it directly from the website. And if you have an idea for a show that you'd like us to do or you would like to be a guest and you think you have an interesting topic, send us an email. Um, you can send us to feedback at sonicsflight.com. Let us know what's on your mind and uh, pitch a, a show idea to us and look forward to, to getting some of that. Uh, we do have some other exciting topics coming up, and uh, we got a, we got a full year's worth of topics to get to. So I'm going to keep, uh, keep the pace up, and we're going to try and knock this backlog down. So once again, uh appreciate it guys and uh be safe out there. Don't try to fly in any eighty mile an hour winds. Except backwards.
2: Yeah, just think of my ground speed when you land.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's always nice to do a hovering approach in a fixed wing aircraft.
0: <laughs> are you talking about freaking the tower out, that'll do it.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tell me what I,
1: I do. R- I've had i I've landed sometimes and they said, Where are you? I'm saying, I'm down here at the end and I said, Oh. <laughs>
0: Tell them you'd like to hover taxi directly to the tie-down spot.
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) All right, guys. Well, hey, uh, good talking to you, and um, we'll we'll see you again next time. All right. Bye. Anybody need a break, or are you ready to roll right into it?
2: You know what? Give me uh, give me 30 seconds.
0: Okay. John's going for a cookie. <laughs> I am on my last Diet Coke, so i got to make it last.
1: Mm, yeah, I just opened up one right before you called.
0: What is he doing? <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs> Who's that in the background?
2: Natalia.
1: Natalia, we're going to start recording now. So. Hey,
2: Natalia, we're recording here.
1: <laughs> Tell her
0: she either has to be quiet or she has to be a guest, one of the other. Either that will
1: be Russian invasion. I think we must be moving up in the world if we're getting the boss man himself to come on the show with us.
0: I think so. Um, I'd like to think that people are enjoying him and finding this valuable, so maybe that's a, a, an encouragement to keep it up.
2: When are we going to start charging a subscription fee?
0: <laughs> After the first year, then we can uh, we can roll that in slowly. All right. <laughs>